welcome to We Dig Metal Evolution, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution documentary series, hosted by Nate Wilcox with Eugene S. Robinson of the art punk band Oxbow and entertainment lawyer Alexi Ald. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today... Nate, Eugene, and Alexi discuss grunge, the explosive mix of punk and metal that burst out of Seattle in the early 1990s and killed glam metal dead. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm once again joined by Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson to continue our discussion of Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution series that aired on VH1 a couple years back. The seventh episode is called Grunge and covers the explosion of bands coming out of Seattle in the late 80s and early 90s, and much of the episode is dominated by Sam Dunn's questions about whether or not grunge even belongs on the metal family tree. Fellas, what do we think? Should grunge be cast out, or is it welcome here at the metal table? Uh, fucking metal, man. I don't. It's more metal. I mean, the only reason why this is even a discussion because is because of the medical met, metal immediately preceding it. Yep. You know, had it had it not been for the comparative juxtaposition juxtaposition of hair metal, this wouldn't even be a question. You know, martial amps. You know, volume, uh, long hair. I mean, these guys move these guys to 1980, 81, they're getting beaten up on the dance floor, man. It's it, it certainly, even though it had punk antecedents or hardcore antecedents uh, was affected by it. These guys were, you know, um, it, they had certain amounts of the punk ethos, but they were, you know, and we played shows. They were like at the shows, you know, um, but they were new generation. I mean, I wouldn't have called them ever hardcore, but they were for sure heavy metal for much, much more than, <laughs> than Striper. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to pick Striper out of the Oh, here. come on. Yeah, man. They make Picking my on. life complete. <laughs> I think also, I think Eugene's right. I mean, I felt the same way. The thing is, it's not as if the groups, the grunge groups that were more like metal, it's not like there was such a difference as a casual between Soundgarden, Alice in Chains on one side and then Nirvana and Pearl Jam, right? You're talking about like the whole like mainstream grunge movement. So it's not, there wasn't such a distinction in their sounds uh, and what they were doing as a casual uh, that I felt like, wait a second, well, Soundgarden's metal, but I don't know what these guys are. You know, I mean, Soundgarden oh, just, yeah. seemed more me- just seemed more metal and Alice in Chains did too because they just had a heavier sound as opposed to the uh, the the singings of uh, the vocal stylings of Eddie Vedder. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I mean, as as evidenced by by who the, com- the the listening communities were. I'm sorry about the kid. I can't do anything about that. Yeah. Hey, could you close that door, baby? 
Um, so, uh, you know, based on the, the listening audiences, I mean, I, I don't think that you, you know, I don't think that you, uh, I mean, it was indistinguishable to the ear of the general public. <laughs> um, you know, so who does that leave who's having this discussion? Like purist and journalist, <laughs> you know, maybe record label guys, you know, because well, I thought the, the key thing, they get to it pretty quick. The, the dude, Jeff Gilbert, who's a Seattle area DJ and journalist, is he's like, it was probably in grunge's best interest that it wasn't associated mm. with heavy metal. Because metal point, came uh, with connotations and goofy ones at that. And this is the thing. We talked about this with Guns N' Roses uh, during the glam episode. There had already been a rebellion against glam from within metal. And 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 it, it started with Guns N' Roses, but it also included who started whole, as glam, though, even when they were popular. Yeah, Axel had who, who the hair, Axel had the makeup, yeah, Steven and Adler. And Chains were, so did Slayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Slayer had makeup, but their makeup was a little I mean, their makeup would have fit in a venom show, you know. But <laughs> but Allison Chains was totally on that same tip too. Yep. And so was a little band in Texas called Pantera. There was, you know, that th- that was just the ethos that a lot of bands were in. If you weren't thrash, you were glam if you were metal at all, basically. And grunge threw a wrench in that because even though it sounded metal, it came out of the punk scene in Seattle, which like Mark Arm says in the show, was this total backwater. I think it's Mike Lazarat that says it was a tertiary market. And Mark Arm points out, like, nobody came to see us, you know? Bands very cool in Seattle. You're a West Coast guy. No, I was calling bullshit on that because Whipping Boy was playing there in 1983 at the Metro and the place was fucking packed. And Lots that was the San actual- Francisco bands played there. I mean, that's, but you know, how many bands from Minneapolis or from Hoboken made it all the way out to Seattle? A lot less than came out to other places. That's the only point. He's not saying nobody came out there. That's, that's, a, that's a significant point. I mean, as a way station on the way to Victoria or Vancouver, you know, when you got people in Vancouver like Dayglo Abortions, I mean, the West Coast, in other words, you know, they can recast it as a lumber town because it fits in with some sort of f- fabled narrative. But that's not I'm, I'm not flannel I'm shirts. Not, that's what it fits. Yeah, in. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not I, buying I, it. I, that was, I've that toured was and I've played like Seattle bullshit. and it was the yeah, kind of thing where I'm yelling at somebody like, why the fuck did you book us in Seattle? It's like an extra, you know, six hours to get nowhere. And Vancouver is not enough of a destination tacked on another, you know, three hours later. Well, let, let, me you, let, 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 let me tell you, in, ni- in 1983, it was a high point of, of our tour. It was better than Vancouver. We got paid $350, which meant we could eat Chinese food that night and actually sleep in a Motel 6. We were pretty happy about that, you know? Yeah, I, so, I mean, and, I don't think it was an island. They're just saying that it was a bit of a backwater relative to, And, you know, and to give you some perspective, uh, uh, Chris Cornell and Kim Fayol were our roadies. <laughs> I knew this was going to come up, and, and it should. You know, <laughs> legendary moments. For <laughs> the future hey, millionaires and sound guard carried your bags. We're, we're, we're too young to get into the show. Could you? Could you help us get in? Well, yeah. And Eugene Tom Sawyer's of if you carry this gear, <laughs> <laughs> crafty. Like the lead singer was going to help pack in gear anyway. I mean, come on. Like let's no, not, not let's not. Forget. Yeah, no, 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 no. They did. The, the key, the key was, uh, we'll get you in if you help us ca- load in and load out. And of course, they were there for the loaded. But I, not, well, you know, I think the way that they, ca- I think things. the way they cast that whole scene 
was very helpful to me because for the first time I understood all of the Kurt Cobain complaints and whining about not wanting to get big and not wanting to get to corporate. I mean, it wasn't until the episode that I got it. When you saw that it was a local scene, people playing music for their friends and the, the close group. And when you get to a point in which when you finally make it big and you're doing tours and you tell the audience, hey, if you don't like gay people, if you're racist, we don't want you here. Because that was reflective of what they were used to playing with. So it, it, so I thought that this episode was probably the most illuminating episode with regard to any kind of music subgenre of metal for me. And just everything made sense. Because I never, I never understood why anybody who signs a record deal and has a video on MTV starts whining and complaining about, oh, I never wanted to get this big. But I understood it a little more in the sense that if you are accustomed to a kind of local yokelism, you don't really know what it means to leave. And so that's why I think also, Eugene, when you're talking about the whole backwater thing, I think mm -hmm. it's one thing for bands like yours and then also with Nate coming there versus the people who are there in their local scene. I guess kind of akin to like maybe like a go-go scene like in D.C. in the sense. Well, the thing that they mentioned that was pretty interesting to me was when they started talking about Rollins and how instrumental it was when Black Flag played there, which makes me think of what happened when – um, Black Flat, when Rollins got signed, and this is when he and I were friends and he was talking to me, and I was like, you know, I asked him, did it change the dynamics of how things worked back home? And he's like, yeah, everybody treats me like I, like I won a lottery. And uh, I think this is kind of, you know, a, a, a microcosm of what happened in Seattle. You know, I mean, these guys were like... And it served to a certain, I mean, it, it almost happened with Green Day in the Bay Area, with the exception of the fact that, you know, the Bay Area has a kind of a musical history of yep. people making it big. So there was a template for it. But, you know, or like the Chappelle show, show skit where he's getting a haircut and they talk about $60 million. And next thing you know, the guy's charging $16,000. I mean, you couldn't go to the same places anymore. You couldn't. And so what was left? And of course, you know, if you've seen these label people work, they're not inherently evil people, but they've got what they do, you know, and what they do is not going to be in, in necessarily in the best interest of, you know, I mean, I, I've seen them with metal musicians who were m much more successful than I am and, you know, feeding bad habits in order to keep these guys compliant, you know? Um, so all of a sudden now, you know, bands like Nirvana are swimming with these scumbags and uh, yeah, I'm sure it must've been, you know, alienating to a certain degree. I mean, two points on that one is the Cobain thing was less about being from Seattle and a backwater scene than being part of the hardcore scene. And by the time Cobain came along, like when, when black flag was part of the hardcore scene, they had tried to, they had a deal where they were on a subsidiary of MCA and yeah, they got that, screwed so hard. They couldn't even perform under their own name for like 18 months, not even play yeah. a gig or do but a recording session credit, to their credit. They fought. because of things that didn't work out. And, mm. you know, the Bad Brains had a number of opportunities to sign with major labels and turn them down because HR is an eccentric personality. And maybe it was the right call for the Bad Brains to turn some of those deals down. They also he, was turned down it, he was afraid of getting what he used to call knacked. He was really horrified by what happened to the knack, I remember. Yeah, the knack. And, and, and you know, that you could easily have gotten a terrible 80s production and ruined your whole reputation as a hard rock band, that kind of stuff. 
But Cobain was coming along at a point when the butthole surfers were totally independent and were getting like ten to fifteen thousand dollars a gig and were selling a couple hundred thousand copies of their albums on Touch and Go Records. Um, you know, and and Fugazi had stayed totally independent and was selling like at one point Fugazi made the Billboard charts. So there was a career path where you could avoid the major labels, still be cool and make a nice living. However, Cobain, I think, was kind of full of shit, because if you read his diaries, he mapped out his whole career plan at a very young age. I do think he was sincerely conflicted about it. And I also think he knew that being the guy complaining about the major labels was a great branding opportunity. The dude was really, really sharp, but also I think as, you know, as his fate shows genuinely tortured. And it's also telling, I think that in this, none of the metal people are denying grunge. It's not like glam where the other metal people are saying this was not metal. You even have people in this episode saying glam was not metal. It wasn't even rock. Like Brian Sager metal blade was like, I liked it. You know? And it was the people who were saying this wasn't metal were people like Mark arm of mud honey, who was, Mudhoney was infamously reluctant to get on board the corporate rock train. Like Steve Turner went back to college at a critical point in their career and, and killed their momentum. They cut their hair at a critical point in their career and killed their momentum. Cause Mudhoney were the guys who pioneered that certain, you know, that skater yeah. cut where you let it grow out and you have like a cousin it haircut all the way around. Yep. And Touch me you know, up they too. had this, yeah, they had this whole look for all the hipsters in 88, 89. If you were into hardcore, or post-hardcore, not like, you know, the New York scene or places where hardcore was still going as hardcore, but all the people that like got into the butthole surfers or Big Black or Pussy Glore, there was this whole scene of bands that were post-hardcore, but they were still noisy and loud and violent. And for a while, yeah, Oxbow. (laughs) And for a while, Sub Pop was the shit on that scene. Like Sonic Youth um, and Mudhoney had a split single. They had all this kind of stuff. So, and, and I thought the one thing, they didn't explain it very well. But they do talk about Sub Pop and they show Tad and they show Mud Honey a lot, which Man. I gave them points for in this. Because a lot of times, you know, for like Alexi, I'm sure Tad and Mud Honey did not register for you at all, right? That's something I remember I got all the spins and the Rolling Stones. So I heard of Tad and Mud Honey. I just never listened to them. Man, yeah, Tad. I never got. Great, great, great. I mean, I, Mud Honey, look, uh, Turner is his best. Actually, his, his sister's best friend is my boss now. At, at, at Wong Duty, the ad agency where uh, I'm, a, I'm a vice president. If that is <laughs> a strange connection, but um, but Tad, man, they were. I just I can't. I listened to, to uh, it was an eight eight ball. What is that record of theirs, man? Eight way uh, Santa. Eight way Santa, nonstop, nonstop. Help yeah. me, Jack and, Pepsi. Help me, and Jack Tad's Pepsi. Tad's problem was Tad Doyle, the lead singer, and this is one of those bands where the name of the band is the same as the name of one of the members. That's always yep. confusing. But Tad Doyle was morbidly obese, right? He looked like a lumberjack. I think that he could have been marketed by the right label in the right way, but MTV just had like a blanket. We are never going to show that fat fuck ever. Yeah, and yeah. and that was a major hindrance for him. And I sent you, Lexi, the story on how they fucked up. They yeah. um, had a big release on sub pop that that was this was a point when mud honey had already sold several hundred thousand copies of it or a record on sub pop so sub pop was getting to where I mean, there was a point in the 80s when the like Husker Du would have an album that got you know album of the year in rolling stone and it would sell twenty thousand copies on sst and that was a big deal for hardcore pop. Yeah, of course. but by the late 80s early 90s they're selling you know six figures but tad used a photograph they found in a, in an estate sale of random okay. people they didn't know who turned out the woman had turned from swinger to Christian 
so she wanted no part of you know this it was this classic cover of a guy with like ridiculous mutton chop sideburn squeezing his chicks breasts and it was like a, a swinger ad and they were a, looking a for great way santa yeah which nobody knew what it was you know but that got him sued and they did a song called jack pepsi that got him sued and yeah. you know that was it for tad but anyway that that's kind of an aside on tad but the deal was there was a good couple of years when Mudhoney and Tad and to a lesser extent Nirvana were big on the underground scene. And at the same time, Soundgarden and Mother Lovebone and not so much Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains kind of came out of nowhere suddenly, but yeah. were yeah. on major labels and were getting the push as metal bands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for Soundgarden to say they weren't, I mean, Hero at least, you know, Hiro Yamamoto, the bass player, Soundgarden, in the interview in this, he recognized that they were becoming a metal band, and that's kind of why he quit. I mean, that was the thing. Like, this was something, like you say, Hero was more like what you were describing Cobain as, somebody who had enjoyed playing music for fun yeah. and then did not want to deal with, you know, the professional hype train. A couple of other things I want to cover from the is it metal or not I like that Mark Arm shouted out Black Sabbath, of course, but everybody does, but also Blue Cheer. And the, the grunge is the whole reason that Blue Cheer got a mention back in the first couple episodes of this, and the same with MC5 and the Stooges. If grunge had not right. happened, punk would never have been legitimated as a marketing thing. It would have just been written out of rock and roll history as this dead end, bad idea. Corporate America was right. Like, forget about it. But because grunge came along and Nirvana was such a big deal, then you know you had to retroactively change the history of heavy metal because as great as they were, MC5 and the Stooges both flamed out spectacularly and never sold mass units. Um, and then the other thing, I think, yeah, the main point, it, you know, so it's people like Mark Arm and and the chick from Hole that was a bass player from Hole that said, you know, glam was like jock crossed with metal, and that was not cool for intelligent people. And this was the branding success of grunge was it came along at a point when metal had been so big for so long that it had worn out its welcome in a lot of ways, at least the glam side, the thrash side was peaking, like they talked about in the thrash episode, but thrash is only going to get so big. I mean, devil songs and, and complicated, you know, nine, eight time signatures and all that kind of stuff is never going to get that big. You're only going to have so many Metallicas or rushes that sell platinum albums doing basically yeah. prog rock. Yeah. Um, and, so the moment was just primed for grunge to come along. And there were a lot of people like me that were out there like 50, 60%, 70% of my friends that I grew up with were metalheads who just would not cross the punk rock barrier. Mm. But then like Nirvana's Negative Creep was one of the first songs you could throw on your cassette player and all your heavy metal friends are just headbanging to it. And they're yeah. not going, oh, what's this punk crap? Or, you know, like it, it just blew the doors off and everybody and, was like, I get uh, it. And also, you know? also the reality of it is, too, these guys were not wholly removed from their audiences. And you could feel you could feel a difference. I mean, Cobain and his diaries say that we played with them. And I, I don't remember as whipping boy, I don't remember playing with them, but I do remember the scene that he was set and the shows that he said that we played with them. And of course he played under different band names, so it could have happened, but you know, you were, I mean, it was still a hardcore ethos. So if you suddenly saw your audience change, like, 
I've never been in a position to have that happen. But if you were suddenly in a position to play a larger venue place, but not a huge place, a, a 500-seater versus a 250-seater, and you were seeing what was happening in the pit, and you were seeing guys with the back, backwards baseball caps, I, you know, again, I've never been in a position to have it happen. But it seems like it would be, I would find it, and this is, you know, as much as I like cash, I would find it disturbing if I looked out and saw from the stage and the singers, you know, I mean, the guitar player, the bass player, they don't always have to look at the audience. The singer and the drummer, you know, you got to take stock in this and you see these douchebags, guys that you wouldn't spend time with. So I would be thinking to myself, so I guess I'm just here for the money. Well, I guess the money's good. Can you build the barrier a little further back, please? So I don't yeah, have to see. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the difference between like Cobain and somebody like Jeff Ahmet and Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam, the thing with Pearl Jam was they were in Green River, which is one of the first Seattle grunge bands. Yeah. I mean, like circa yeah. 84, 85, you had the U-Men, you had the Melvins down from Aberdeen, you had Soundgarden, and you had Green River, pretty much those were and the mal- bands in Seattle. Malfunction. And Malfunction, yes, Malfunction is key. Um, and Mark Arm could never, he really is a pretty limited singer. He sounded like Keith Ralph of the Yardbirds when he was playing with Jimmy Page. And you listen to those Jimmy Page and the Yardbirds live albums, and you're like, I see why he needed to fire this guy and get Robert Plant. Because you want to do Led Zeppelin, you want to have a singer. Like yeah. Mark Arm and Keith Ralph were great yellers, and they could do basic rock. But grunts to me seems to be about baritone voices really carrying notes for a long distance. Yeah. You know, that's what connects. Yeah. Mother Love Bone to Alice in Chains to Stone Temple Pilots, who they pointedly I'm don't glad, talk about. I'm glad, I'm glad they shit all over that, too. <laughs> I, well, they don't, you know, but the thing uh, is under, to me, by, under, by omission, but but when, when Mark Arm quit Green River, and this is after Gossard and Ahmet are like trying to get him to take singing lessons, making him listen to the new Aerosmith album. I mean, they are just like, they have like, (laughs) we want to sell out written all over them. So they get with Andrew Wood of Malfunction to form Mother Love Bone. And Andrew Love is the kind of guy who's like this naive genius, but it was obvious his whole ethos was about being a rock star. So it was no sellout for him to become a rock star. And, you know, they form Mother Love Bone, they sign a major label deal. They create a boutique label. Polydor created their own label, Stardog, and put their first EP out on it, just the way A&M signed Soundgarden and had them put out an album on sub, on SST, mm. you know, to be hip and underground. Um, and then Andrew Wood ODs right before, I think right after their, their album comes out. And, yeah. you know, they have to reassemble. They get this guy from San Diego, Eddie Vedder, who has nothing to do with grunge or the whole scene. He was friends yeah. with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but as far as I know, had no <laughs> hardcore credibility. That explains everything, huh, Eugene, about your feelings <laughs> for Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder. Yeah, does. and so... It's like, there's something about you know, this gum motherfucker I don't like. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> and then Alice and Chains comes out. The thing they talk about, they talk to Susan Silver, who was um, Chris Cornell's wife and also Soundgarden's manager, and Alice and Chains' manager, and she was partners with the guys who were Mother Love Bones' managers. So there was a crew in Seattle that were like, we want to get out of this town, we want to be big-time record biz guys. And that mm. was Alice and Chains, who were always metal guys, who were like the cool metal guys and, who showing up at the punk And shows. the thing is, also keep in mind the fact that in terms of their, their bona fides with metal, they were the ones that put Metallica on blast for cutting their hair with the infamous Mike Inez on his bass guitar. Friends, don't let friends get friends' haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
that was and that yes, all classic. that totally if you talk about any kind of, oh gap is it metal is it not metal that was metal and that totally yeah. was more in the spirit of metal than what metallica ended up becoming That's metallica funny. i think i would argue that the black album is a grunge album that that they were just as much jumping the trend as Stone Temple Pilots or anybody. It was just something that was in the air, detuning and that kind of vocals, and you know, massively successful. And they managed to make that shift from thrash to grunge. To find it. Say, yeah, oh, I mean, to find me, to find me, to find me. Uh-huh. I have to say my my appreciation for Dave Mustaine grows and grows. I don't know that guy clearly should never have been interviewed for written stuff because he comes across so much better uh, like on video. Man, I love that guy now. You know, I I, I'm I always was a fan. Favorite. I was always a fan because I never read his stuff. I, I always saw the interview. The, the, uh, yeah. the yeah. yeah, but I saw him on that um, Clash of the Titans tour. And Slayer whipped their ass so bad. Alice in Chains rocked really hard and, and mm-hmm. really wowed everybody because nobody expected anything. And then Anthrax to Megadeth and Slayer would change their order. And I saw two different shows with different running orders. And when Slayer went on before Megadeth, I swear the crowd just left. You know, like I like Megadeth and they have their virtues, but I think they're real guitar oriented and Slayer's more bass and drum oriented. And Slayer just blew him away night after night after night. And Anthrax was, you know, solidly in the middle. But that's neither here nor there. The thing I want to that's, get to. Actually, that's one is, of my favorite. When, in Australia, when the Cro-Mags played with Motorhead. And so they announced the Cro-Mags and people were like, fuck these short hair, fuck their mother. And Harley said he ran down as a long stage. He ran down the stage and people were giving him the finger in the front row, slid on his knees and did like a baseball slide straight into a face kick to the, to somebody in the front row, like knocked the guy out and then stood up and they started playing. The audience could got to see it on the jumbotron and they were like, Oh yeah. It was like the most, <laughs> it was the greatest yeah, yeah. turnaround ever. Didn't do that particular move, but you know, one people over, but the thing that they get into, and I want to, I want to mention here was the absolute marketing genius of sub pop records. Cause they were an indie label, just like touch and go, just like SST. There was discord. There were so many punk labels that have been doing good work in the eighties, but sub pop were actual marketing geniuses. They had this single of the month club and they would like feature one sub pop band and then they would get a big indie band to be on the mm. other side of it. So if you're Sonic youth, you spend half an hour in the studio and you throw them some B-side or a cover of something. It doesn't cost you anything and, and you get a little bit of money, but you get all this hype. But they got like everybody would order this thing and, and people would subscribe to the single of the month club and it actually turns out it was keeping the record company going because they were totally broke. But people would pay for you know 12 months worth of singles in January and not get yep. the singles until December. So, you know, great cash flow for a record company. And then the Would other you... thing they did that was brilliant was they sent Mud Honey over to England really early on in like 89 because they knew they could never get any press in Seattle. And that was also a podunk scene. I mean, literally what they say, it was a couple dozen people showing up to see their friends' bands. I mean, there were a lot of cool bands, but it was not like, you know, one of these scenes you know, like when Metallica played the big theater in New York, it wasn't like this massive grassroots uh, scene that was bubbling under. When when they sent Mud Honey to London, it's true. I mean, Metallica's not. packed. What? I fucking played there in 1983 to 300 people, man. 
I know, but Metallica hey, played there to three thousand people. That's you know, the Nate, I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're picking up on what Eugene has been you guys trying don't to like tell Metallica, you. No, blah, 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 that's not it. No, it's what? it was a small scene for them, but for Eugene, Correct. they came out. It was a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But, yeah. No, I'm talking about the That's Metallica what he's show. saying. Where they had 3,000 people there. It wasn't my experience yeah, at I mean, all. I had large crowds. Out-of-town bands, sure, out-of-town bands in Seattle would get big shows. And one of the reasons Black Flag had such a big impact was everywhere else in the country, Black Flag came out with long hair playing slow songs, and they got booed, and people freaked out. In Seattle, people were already into metal, so it was like one of the few shows where my war went over big. But the point yeah. I want to make, was they send Mudhoney over to London. They've hyped up all these reporters. And Mudhoney gets like on the cover of either the Melody Maker or the New Musical Express on the cover. And it yep. was like the, the big new grunge scene from Seattle. And these limeys who had been totally not into guitar rock for years by that point. I mean, R.E.M. went over there and died. Black Flag went over there and died. Bad Brains couldn't even get over there successfully. I mean, so many okay. bands. Uh, what? You're, you're you're wrong, but okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Bad Brains absolutely. tried to get over there, and, and they didn't have a and visa. Brain, they couldn't get over and, there. They got stopped they at the border. They, they played England. They played England because they were being spit on by skinheads, and Daryl fucking knocked a couple skinheads out. That was a Climbs different tour. Down. The first tour they went over there to go to, they literally flew over there, couldn't play. All their equipment got impounded, and they got sent back. They went back later and played, yeah, but, but, and but you, still didn't you, go over you you've said that they that they have never played. They have played. No, I didn't say they never played. I said they never went over. Nobody, they, they, no rock bands from America did well in England throughout the eighties until these bands went over there, and finally they were back ready for guitar bands again. I mean, England just wasn't into guitar bands for like a decade. This what? Is like, it's, you're absolutely 100% wrong. I, I, I have what, name a guitar band that was I, I, massive in England in the 80s, besides well, the Smiths. We're, are we going to hang up? We're going to hang up on the word massive because Steve Gullick, the photographer who was one of the first and last photographers to ever take photographs of, of Nirvana, was also there at, at uh, Oxbow's first show, which was in 1990. And they were still talking about bands like Boss Hog. They were very excited by this kind of post. That was thing. again after this all happened. I'm talking about in the early 80s when REM went over there, oh. 82, 83, it, when Black Flag went over there. I mean, like there had been a whole litany of American bands that just went over there and did not get over. Uh, Black Flag did okay. They the mistake they made was touring with Venom, but largely they did okay. You know. Well, I mean, but they weren't the big thing. They were not on the cover of the NME, Correct. which Correct. which Mud Honey was. And and the, and you know the British media is just viciously tabloid and fickle. And Mud Honey was the flavor of the month. And once you're on the cover of the NME, you know who subscribes to that? The whole staff of the Village Voice subscribes mm. to that everybody at the la times subscribes to that so they're suddenly authenticated by somebody outside of seattle that who that much that much is true because oxbow couldn't get arrested in san francisco was invited over by the guys at rough trade uh, to to play played two shows and was in melody maker sounds uh enemy not on the cover but full page spread also photographed by steve gullick um, so yeah, it was a time when people were looking for stuff. And of course, you know, you look at a band like Radiohead, to me, they were always a Nirvana copy band. I never saw them, you know, they exceeded. Until they later be on. became a Pink Floyd and U2 copy band. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But those were, yeah, those were, at least you, you, you know, 
Anglo, Anglo, you know, well, Irish and English people. But um, so, yeah, it was it was an interesting it was an interesting time. But there was I mean, they were tuned into post punk, but massive. No, you, you, that that much you're right about. It was not. Massive. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about massive and I'm talking about the press attention. Sure. Bands like I mean, there were British guitar got, bands we, that carved we, out whole we, careers. Huge press attention, but we were still playing in front of 500 people at more, at best, right? So. Yeah, and that was also after the Mud Honey thing. Like, you know, Mud Honey went over there in '89 and 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 totally blew up. So that you know, very very clever, shrewd marketing. Plus, their graphics were brilliant. Like when A and M signed Soundgarden, we, they totally stole the sub pop graphic style for the Louder Than Love cover. We were there in '90, and I mean, recently people were still talking about it. And the Brits had started to grow their hair, so it definitely had had, a, had an effect. But also, I think one thing you left out when you talk about Jonathan Poneman and you know the part of the secret sauce is both of those guys who started sub pop record label and um, radio guys. They worked at the big radio college radio station there, and that is not. I mean, that is in my mind majorly significant. You know. Um, yeah, they knew to work radio. And they yeah, need to Cor- work press. Cor- Corey at Touch and Go, not a radio guy. You know, uh, Greg Ginn, not a radio guy. Good labels, Ian, not a radio guy. The guys at Sub Pop are radio guys, you know. Yeah, and radio is, you know, that's how it gets heard. And if, if you're not a major yeah. label, you know, you can get on college radio and sell some units. So we've chewed up our time bickering about nonsense, but that's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it is your fault. It is your fault because you're so aggressively wrong. I had to say something. I, oh, your equivalent of your hair splitting. Your hair splitting. But anyway, we'll be back and we'll finish this up with a big discussion about which of the four big metal, big sub pop bands were metal and which were not. So that'll be Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains, which is basically maybe no, yes, and yes, but not to spoil anything. And we'll talk about the fall of grunge as well when we return. And now, a word from our sponsors. And we're back, continuing our discussion of crunch. <laughs> My two dear friends and interlocutors who are yes, continuing to hassle and raz and give me grief and Incu- busting, which is Incu- totally unfortunate. Is how I think we feel. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> 
left off, Eugene and I were pointlessly bickering about a misunderstanding about whether or not any American bands had been big with the British press in the 80s. I think we can agree no bands, no American bands were darlings of the British media in the 80s. Right. Um, that's that's a huge macro statement, and uh, it could very possibly be correct. <laughs> I, I mean, that's my understanding is that you know, REM. Yeah, I wasn't, fr- fr- frankly, I wasn't really paying attention to Europe as a possibility or a place of interest. If you're talking '83, '84, I was so focused on hardcore in America that Europe just didn't make any sense. And as we got toward the end like when the creation of Oxbow started to happen is when we started to pay attention to Europe because that's, that was a first, London was the first place that Oxbow was noticeably making some sort of whatever would constitute an impact. And so Oxbow came out in 88, the record came out in 89. And so by 89, I was thinking about Europe in a serious way. But before yeah. then I didn't know any, I didn't know anybody who'd played. I don't even think the band that I was probably closest to the dead Kennedys, they may have gone already. Um, I can't remember if they did or not. But yeah, I, I know I, I, Black Flag went over there and died to death, and I know the Bad Brains tried well, to Black, fail to go Black, over Black, there Black, once, and then went yeah, over there is, a second this time. Is we, and this is where we got had, hung up last time because yeah. the issue is that Black Flag went over right as they were transitioning into their long hair phase, so people were not into it. Skinheads showed up expecting one type of band. Um, and they, they were a different type of band. They'd already started to grow their hair out and play longer songs. And they were also on tour with Venom. And uh, and they didn't think much of Venom. Venom's audience didn't think much of them. The skinheads that showed up didn't think much of Henry. So it was kind of a catastrophe. Bad Brains issue. They just weren't, you know, Daryl beat up some guys in the audience for spitting on them. And again, I think I think the untold story is, you know, based on... I wasn't paying attention at the time, but based on my reading of what they said when they got back was probably the key was their reggae. <laughs> you know, it's like trying to go into London and open an yeah. Indian I restaurant, mean, I think you know, it's like the old, you know, there's a million unhappy families. There's a million ways to fail, yeah. but the point is nobody had gotten over. No American underground bands had gotten over with the British media until sub pops and mud honey over there. And they were on the cover of the mags. That got them in the village voice. That turned and, fr- and, 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 and frankly, uh, frankly, I have to tell you, honest to God, it, it really wasn't the music. Um, but that cover was so iconic that it created a situation where people were like, "Whatever that is, I want to, I want to be. What, what what's happening there is something that should be. I, I need to be there." Um, and that and was, was their good- whole media strategy everywhere. That was their yeah. graphic designs on the albums. Like, remember when Mud Honey did? I think it was a single that was a a mimic of the slits famous yep. album cover yep. where they're covered in mud. Yep. Yep. They just had yep. the look, they had their hair yep. down, you know, bobbed down to their chin. They had yep. these love beads on. They did photos. So you couldn't see their faces. They just had this mystique and this cool. Yep. Yep. But, the but thing you already that, had, you already had, didn't, weren't they preceded by, I mean, it's a completely different type of music, but you know, that kind of media pop idol tree, idolatry, um, lemon heads, I think the Lemonheads were first. Well, the Lemonheads had some splash, but and they were Tang Records was their label. And, but see, that's and, the and they were bigger Boston. point I'm trying yeah. to make about this whole thing was yeah. like they referenced toward the ends of this episode Lollapalooza. Yeah, Lollapalooza is this massive alternative music fest headlined by uh, Jane's Addiction, but it had I started by Perry. Yeah, uh, 
Perry Farrell of, of Jane's Addiction was the main organizer. I, I think Ice T was the co-headliner. The Butthole Surfers opened up that first year. The Rollins Nick, fans was on Nick it. Cave, Nick Cave, yeah, Nick Cave. Yeah, I mean, and that was packing stadiums like mm-hmm. well before grunge was even a thing, even though Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Mother Love Bone all had major label deals already. But- and also if you, if you go back, there was like some, there was like surprising that the replacements didn't, didn't really, mm. I mean, the replacements didn't go to Europe and like, wow, wow them either, which that seems like much more of a natural fit, but yeah, things yeah, started to come. The replacements and who's could do both. I don't know that they yeah. ever tried that and they both, got major labels and both you know failed for different yeah. reasons the replacements because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're doing dumb shit like spending a big you know getting a video budget and spending it to film a video of a speaker and stupid shit like that or you know? or taking taking a huge amount of heroin and dying well you know that's just, uh, <laughs> your mileage may vary bob didn't die until much much later <laughs> yeah yeah but, he died but later. We'll, and, I, and actually i don't yeah. even know it's un, it's unfair i don't know that it was uh heroin i think it was alcohol addict, it was alcohol yeah yeah, yeah 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 but but back to back to grind so we kind of they spend an inordinate amount of time on which of these bands are metal mm, right I, I think that's fairly pointless but i do think that the the key takeaways are notice that the metal people all liked the grunge bands and it was all the punky side of grunge that were like no 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 we're not metal but it definitely went over with metal fans but my biggest issue that i want to get across to people is that there's this retro story that it was all glam metal and then one day nirvana fell out of the sky and suddenly it was all grunge and it was it was a very different thing that like u2 and rem were even part of this alternative rock thing because u2 got huge with joshua tree rem gets huge with um whatever crappy song they got huge with the the one i love and and losing my religion well that was when they got just unbearably huge like you guys yeah. are hating on metallica but my god they never did anything like shiny happy people oh like, uh, that's what i was gonna oh no no no, like, no no i got i got plenty of hate in store for rm but i just yeah just same here. i never liked them yeah. but i mean i like the early stuff you know because i'm that kind of cool guy that i always liked the first album but um you know uh but the <laughs> but back to the show the the next thing they miss they just really kind of glide over the success of the of the thing like they're like never mind they get they get the guy from um allison chains jerry cantrell is like whoa it was so weird when all of a sudden it's this freakish mainstream thing and it's kind of embarrassing and it's happening around me and i'm sure that was true to his experience but it's kind of cutting a bunch of the stuff out of the story and they use mark arm to sum it up he's like the first thing that happened was Alice in Chains' record went gold, and then Nevermind came out and was quickly followed by Pearl Jam's 10. And once that happened, it was obvious it was mainstream. And then it went to this next level thing where people from local bands are on the cover of Time Magazine and Mark Grunge yeah, Jacobs yeah. is doing grunge fashion shows. And that, you know, that was a next level. But I mean, the first thing that happened was Susan Silver put together a professional management operation and Mother Love Bone was part of it and Alice in Chains was part of it and Soundgarden was part of it and they worked really hard to break through the metal market. All three of those bands were trying to push through the mother the, the metal market and not even really associating themselves with alternative or underground at that point. They were They were thinking, we want to get big and we're going to do it the way metal bands do it. Nirvana was kind of a different deal because they followed Soundgarden onto, onto Geffen. And like what you're saying, Alexis, last week about how you got it now that Coban was trying to say in a small scene, 
I mean, I think that's true of like people like Hiro Yamamoto of Soundgarden who like right. got a taste of what the big time was like. I was like, uh, no thanks. And, you know, Mudhoney, Steve Turner, like definitely made multiple moves to deliberately sabotage their career and preserve his sanity. And, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people with a little bit of music biz experience have seen what happens to people who get on major label bands and don't become the Beatles or even sometimes who do become the Beatles like Kurt Cobain, you know, and just opt out of that. Um, but anyway, you know, yeah. So that, yeah. I, yeah. I know what it's, I know what that's like. <laughs> uh-huh. But it was a ripe old age, which, you know, Cobain yeah. and, yeah. and that's great. Emeline Stamey didn't get a chance to do. And, and yeah. even Chris Cornell, you know, I'm so um, old and broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's better to be old and broke than be old and dead. That's but true. The other yeah. thing. Hey, we're all going to be old and dead. Well, if we're, some of us if are we're lucky. Dead, young and dead. Yeah. If we're yeah, lucky. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what the big. That's old, the big rich, and dead. You can't take it with you. So, you know what? Can you not? But the other things I want to mention was the sing, uh, singles movie. And the soundtrack, right. which oh, was a total grunge thing. Like one thing we missed in the hip hop series was the role of Tupac's movies in making him big. Like I had an epiphany like a week after we talked about that. And, uh, <laughs> and that was Alexi. Uh, oh. Shut up, we're on air. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Was... Just mute yourself. Oh, geez, sorry. Just I was just listening to some grunge. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is John Nash making an uninvited guest appearance on my show. I read the complete words of Garth Mangy. I'm sorry. See, he 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 drew a last place on Carado Care, so now he's just desperate to get in anyway. I see, I see, I see. Anyway, the thing I missed about the Tupac thing was it was his movies that made Tupac a star. It wasn't really his hip hop albums. I mean if you look at what happened between his less successful hip hop albums, his more successful hip hop albums was a big break in the movies. And I think that the grunge movie with Matt Dillon with the mud honey haircut and the whole bit screaming trees even had a hit single, never followed up on it. And then, um, the next thing they do is then they basically like, then Kurt Cobain killed himself and that killed grunge. I think Jack and Dino had a good point which was like, what do you, what did it kill? I mean, the Seattle scene was already dead. It was killed by literally thousands and thousands of kids moving to Seattle to become the next Nirvana. It's disgusting. Well, you know, it happens. And and yeah, I I mean, I can't underestimate, I can't overstate maybe is a better word, um, how horrible it is to be in a town that suddenly has that, the Hollywood mm. you know, spotlight on it and how that really just even changes interpersonal. You're at the bar talk. It's just, it just makes it kind of a weird grub fest. I mean, Nathaniel West wrote about the best in the day of the locust. And that, you know, I remember at a certain point going, we don't really need to come back here. Do we? <laughs> it was <laughs> m- many, many years before we played Seattle again. So, you know, when Justin Bieber came to my daughter's uh, elementary school, uh, you know, mm hanging out with his minister's family. I, I totally understand what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Justin Bieber's at my school. I was like, yeah, whatever. No, he is. And I was like, fuck, he is. What and, was he doing yeah. there? 
his uh he was going through a rehab uh with his minister living in his minister's house in montclair nick lentz who just had a fall from grace like last year the hillsong church sex scandal oh of course that, that dustin Bieber managed to avoid falling into that but anyway these are the perils of fame and this is the kind of stuff you know that cobain had this tortured relationship with but like if you if you read what Buzz Osborne has to say about it, Buzz will just call him out. And Cobain was kind of like his kid brother musically. Like he he they were from the same small town in Aberdeen. You know, he knew Cobain from the time he was fifteen. And basically yeah. he was like, you know, I've heard all of Kurt's whining, but Kurt hired the scummiest managers in the business. He hired the scummiest road crews in the business. He got on the scummiest record crew in the business, record company in the business. Like he picked these people. It's just a scum magnet or like what's the well, I mean, if you read Cobain's diaries, he mapped out his whole career in amazing detail long in advance. I mean, like this was the devil worked with him. No, the crossroads (laughs) of Seattle. (laughs) I saw you see the devil as a lumberjack. When you see the lumberjack, it's not a lumberjack. (laughs) And that ain't an axe. That yeah. part wasn't in the diaries. It was more things about video and image and 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 the whole thing. Like I mean, and, 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 I don't, and let's and let's not forget for even half a second that he chose to marry Courtney Love. Exactly. I mean, he managed to compress the whole John Lennon narrative into you know a very short period of time, and then took the Mark David Chapman role for himself. So, um, um, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say that he was murdered, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to derail the show. I just want to get that in there. There are those who who believe that, but um, and maybe but, it's no. True. But listen, listen, know. listen, listen. When you murder a guy who's suicidal, people just kind of go, ah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, and he telegraphed a suicide, and he had a serious suicide attempt long before that. And I mean, I don't know. I think it's a tragedy. Like if you read Cobain's biographies and stuff, he's right up there with like Hank Williams or Marvin Gaye or Brian Wilson or Brian Jones in terms of most screwed up rock star ever. Like there was never a stable point in his life. Not after he was six or seven anyway, like the guy was just a miserable wretch. And, you know, um, he was very good at being a rock star and, and mapped all that out, you know, but then he took a shotgun to his head. But the other thing was- A, 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 a shotgun was taken to his head. A, hands up dead. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I, I mean- I'm, I'm just, I hear, I hear things. <laughs> you saw the movie i remember when that movie came out the Kurt Co- courtney movie and people were like "Ooh, one of his rock uh contacts reveals the secret plot to murder and then it's el duce from the mentors and you're like shot gun just well, no 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 you, you for, you, you, now you forget we share we share a producer mm. we being you and yeah no, you and Cole. yeah yeah, yeah so. so but the producer wasn't there was he uh, i hear things you see you hear things but back back to the to the thing while we still <laughs> still have it like, this is like a worst episode ever but um, it's because of you showing up 10 minutes late hey, this on you. i was here early and nobody was here and i texted Gosh. you it was like where yeah. are you guys yeah we were here in the show waiting for you that's where we were i was so late too. i thought i, I could know. slip in and take yeah like we need to show oh. this guy ain't showing up nate nate, okay, nate, nate was doing he was doing some kind of vision quest i don't know what you're doing out there in austin just wandering around the streets where's the guys yeah, yeah. where are the guys i disagree with you i gotta interrupt though because i know i know courtney love because i met her and she blew smoke in my face and that was <laughs> <laughs> 
you can't. You can't. She was. Yeah, she was I mean, to kill you. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Courtney Love is a whole other amazing thing, and they do speak to one of the people out of Hole, but they don't mention Hole as a thing, a as as a band as part of the scene. And that's the thing. Like, there's this sort of there was a scene in Seattle. It was unique. It did contribute this particular style or sub style, but when it was coming up, it wasn't this unified thing and it wasn't the only thing going on. It wasn't even the only thing that was, I mean, it was, it wasn't even the only thing that was grunge. I mean, people were calling bands like Jesus lizard and all the amphetamine reptile bands grunge um, before Nirvana and the whole major label thing. It's just like, I don't know. It's interesting to me to, to have seen a, this history happen and then see the word about. And the other thing yeah, I thought about that. Go ahead. I don't. I don't want. I don't feel like I'm ready to forgive them for two things. Um, them being Nirvana, Creed, or... that whole scene, the puzzle scene. That's what I was trying to get. Yeah, and and Helmet. I don't know. I like Helmet, but that's yeah. Of course, I, I mean Helmet didn't I could, even I have tell, enough I could, of a big I impact. Tell, I could tell from your hat. I could tell from your hat. That you're... <laughs> but Helmet, Helmet didn't even fan. have a big enough impact to not like. I mean, I'm beefed at oh, Helmet because they never oh. mounted anything. Like they oh, did two Paige albums. Hamilton is lived on. A third one, you, you know, a couple years later. Huh? I said Paige Hamilton has lingered and lingered and lingered and lingered and lingered and lingered. Well, I'm sorry that he's bothered you, but it's not like Creed or Nickelback that's become this plague. And another thing they left out was Stone Temple Pilots. So oh, if you notice gosh. in their little post-grunge list, Stone Temple Pilots is the first band up there, mm. which is... I mean, yeah, they were opportunists from San Diego who had no connection to the underground scene, who had no connection to Seattle and grunge, who quickly capitalized on the sound and were just right there in the right time and place. But to me, they're just as good as Pearl Jam. I my mean, favorite, my favorites in that regard, however, if you want to talk about not not mentions that they weren't given were Bush, because I saw an interview. They had some I, pictures of Bush in there, but they didn't. I heard in, yeah. in interview the first interview I heard with Bush, they said, "Oh yes, people think we're from Seattle, but we're not from Seattle." It's so funny that people always confuse us with the Seattle band, but actually Seattle. And in the first paragraph, they mentioned Seattle seventeen times. It's like <laughs> they really they wanted you to make the Bush Seattle Seattle Bush. I got you, buddy. You know, yeah, buddy. yeah. It's yeah, but the post grunge thing starts with Stone Temple Pilots, I think. I mean, I would include them really as a grunge band because they had as much to do with the scene as Eddie Vedder did. They were also who's who's that band that did that record throwing copper? Oh, I remember that, but I can't remember the name. I don't know. Nash, make yourself useful and Google something. I don't trust. I don't that. trust him. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Trust him. All right. I'll let, yeah. let, let Eugene do it. The other thing, though, when they bring up the post grunge thing, and they talk about, they spend a good chunk of the episode live. talking about that. Oh, yeah. live. Yeah. Live. Yeah. Live was different. They were no, British, no. and they were sort of. No, they weren't British. Wait, wait, they weren't throwing copper. Throwing coppers from the band Live. Just like live, yeah. live, wasn't, live, wasn't, live, 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 I'm getting them no. confused with EMF. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, garbage I, bands. I, since I stumbled into this, did they talk about Babes in Toyland at all, or any of those bands? No, yeah, they did are... not talk about any of the any of the girl bands at the time. But and they don't talk about Smashing Pumpkins either. Oh, which, that's right. Which 
totally came up at the same time and was bought by the same audience and sounded a lot like grunge. Um, and as to me, another classic rock band that sort of snuck under the alternative flag just because it was kind of meaningless by that point. And, you yeah. know, um, anybody could do it. But the thing about doing the, this show when they did it about seven, eight years ago is that Nickelback was not yet a punchline. Nickelback was yeah. massively popular. They were not cool. And so they spent a lot of the time trying to justify you know, oh, well, you know, the guy from Jerry Cantrell likes Nickelback. And if you just come to our shows, you'd like us because yeah, yeah, we do some that. heavy stuff. But yeah. now Creed and Nickelback have become these massive internet punchlines, just like what happened to the glam bands. You know, it's yeah. the exact same thing repeating. And I think such is the fate of all sort of second generation corporate contrived, you know, not, yep. not I don't even call it movement, but categories yeah yeah and i don't want to hate on those bands or people who like them but like just listen to the bits of nickelback and that thing i was hearing pantera riffs i was hearing soundgarden riffs and not just like the feel of or the vibe of you know the soundgarden would have like the vibe of led zeppelin or the feel of some black sabbath like i'm talking about specific oh that riff is that song you know yeah. that kind of crap yeah. um yeah. And yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think that episode more or less covered the scene. The main point they wanted to get across is that Seattle had this unique environment that caused this unique music to come out. The timing was brilliant, it was massively successful, and it did become this freakish cultural phenomenon um, that totally then kills the music scene dead. And then Kurt Cobain kills himself dead, and, and that was kind of that. And to me, Cobain's suicide uh, or his death, death, whatever, had the effect of being a checkmate because Eddie Vedder had been just whittling away his lead. You know, like Cobain jumped way out in front with Smells Like Team Spirit, but Eddie Vedder was much more what. Ah, and we didn't even bring up the Yarling. And that's Eddie's contribution, yeah. that Chris Cornell yeah. and Eddie Vedder, this what has become known as Yarling. No, 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 I'm you have to don't put Chris Cornell, Cornell out of there. Yeah. Cornell Take him out of there. Sing. Exactly. Well, but the, the, like, even when you watch the video footage of Allison chains at clash of the Titans, you can tell it's a little slower. leaves lots of room for a big baritone voice to fill the space. That was essentially the commercial sound of grunge was slow, heavy, plenty of room, male baritone singer. It's the same thing Scott Weiland had. Chris Cornell had it. Eddie Vedder had it. Um, you know, pretty much all the, all the grungiest of the grunge guys, that was their key. Andrew Wood wasn't quite like that. He was a little bit more of a screecher. Cobain was definitely not a yarler. Um, but do you remember yeah. where you were when Kurt Cobain died? I do. I was pushing a mail cart at the Texas state historical association nice. and, and my friend the and drug connection the secretary like suddenly was ashen faced and telling me about it and then i had to listen to the uh late dr george ward the esteemed assistant director coming in and telling me you know what garbage nirvana was and how how terrible kurt cobain was etc cetera, etc cetera. it was right up there with the day he spent lecturing me about how bad goodfellas was so miss oh, you dr like ward but <laughs> don't miss your cultural opinions yeah man you know, how about you? I, Where were you, Eugene? I, I was at Intel, and Bart Thurber 
uh, whipping boy, second guitar player, as well as a producer of Fuckfest, the King of the Jews, calls me at work. He's all breathless. Because, hey, man, I go, what, what's, what, do you, what do you call me at work for? What do you want? And he's like, Kurt Cobain killed himself. First words out of my mouth were, good. <laughs> he's like, come on, man. No, what, what do you mean? I go, if a guy like that can't be happy, there's no hope for the rest of us. I got to go. <laughs> you see, in 1994, I was still an ass. Amazingly consistent and on brand. Where were you, John? <laughs> He's still driving, in shock. I was driving court. Well, actually, where I was was right here. I didn't know before now that he actually died. But, uh, no, I was I, I was driving the Courtney. Courtney Love's vehicle away from an estate in Seattle, which I wasn't allowed to check the trunk. And then, and then I heard on the radio that he had, no. I, I was in Minneapolis. I was hung over. And I think a friend just called me, go, Jesus Christ, Kirk, that asshole Kurt Cobain killed himself. And he was a huge Nirvana fan. So he was just furious that he killed himself. So that was, but uh, it was, I remember the scene. I was, you know, it was, it was more interesting where I was because I don't know more interesting, but it, it wasn't like grunge. It was like Jane's Addiction. It you know it was every type of rock band that didn't fit in the heavy metal but we liked heavy metal bands that had to be like Iron I mean Jay's Addiction was really basically a metal band they, yeah. they yeah. sort of were funk or metal and, and it, it was know. the Stooges well, continuation the kicking scene like, oh it was amazing yeah toilet from yeah. there I mean yeah all, Run Westy Run we went and saw all those guys but but I think the Kurt Cobain dying what it really opened the plug is because Kurt had such credentialism in the in the scene at the time and the music and everything he could ridicule bands and kill their careers because you're not cool. Kurt Cobain didn't like you. And people would become big fans of like, uh, what's the Japanese bands and stuff. But because Kurt Cobain said they were cool, they could open or the up meat for puppets. shows. The Meat Puppets yeah. went platinum after after he got him again. Yep. Daniel Johnson's whole mainstream success was because Cobain I, wore his t-shirt around. He destroyed Guns N' Roses. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't he, think it's a fluke that uh, Jaggy Little Pill took off after. Oh, you know, so yeah, you know. between Cobain and Mike Judge, for a while there was this just side killing any, any yeah. cornball act. And Alexi, yeah. where were you when Cobain died? Uh I can't remember. Did, was it, did, it wasn't that impactful for me. <laughs> I, I was like, I oh, he died. Okay. And then yeah. I, I, Courtney Love. I heard uh, what I heard was I remember when she had her little vigil and she was like, "Fuck you, Kurt." Everybody say, "Fuck you, Kurt." And that's that was my introduction. I was like, "Oh, she killed his ass." Like that yeah. to me, it just seemed like I thought she killed him, and yes. it was like you know I thought they were at the time I thought they were overrated. You know I had moved on something else. You know I I was I was tired of Nirvana. So, uh, you know, and, it wasn't, and a lot it, of people it, were, it but then after he died, he becomes sainted. Well, that's what and... made it worse. It was a whole Tupac yeah. effect where it's like, okay, this guy was fucking annoying when he was alive. And now yeah. that he's dead. I'm going to hear about his ass for, I don't know how long. And then thank God people moved well, on he... to somebody well, else. But even worse though. And I did a whole interview with this guy, Adam Caress, who wrote a whole book about it, documenting what happened. The record companies didn't know what to do after Lollapalooza and Nevermind and Pearl Jam and everything else. Because it wasn't just grunge. It was all kinds of random stuff was hitting the mm. charts and getting airplay. And Alternative was this really broad category. Then Cobain kills himself and they're like, aha, what we need is a bunch of junior Kurt Cobains. And that's when Bush gets the big push. That's when Live gets the big push. I mean, Radiohead. Candlebox comes crawling up and 
and they just codified here's what it is yeah. and it's all about yeah. yarling and it's all about this certain look and this certain sound and and and, and, and the most miserable portion of it is this navel gazing um what is this thing uh morbid self-attention oh yeah that, that that has you know transmogrified into what we have today you know i mean you know i got a friend of mine called me so eugene could we meet and i go yeah he's like i really want to talk and i i felt like shooting myself at that point i don't want to have your fucking heart-to-heart <laughs> talk i don't want to do any of that shit you see on tv i'm not the guy for it you know it was uh I think when Kurt Bain, the thing was interesting to the point, can you, during that scene of someone like Baruch Gasol could pop up, be popular and be played. Like you could say, we have a festival with Baruch Gasol, Nirvana, uh, Wilco, you know, like your son, Walter, whoever was at the time, Uncle, Uncle Tupelo. I'm like, just an oddball collection of bands and, and shit, we could throw in, bring back the Stooges and some, throw that in the mix and people would be happy to see that show. That's, mm. you know, that was like, that was next, that was a lot of lineup. And then as soon as Cobain died, next thing you know, like, nope, grunge alternatives, its own little kind of cheesy metal type version of metal. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing, you know, then pop punk happens, which was a fairly relatively yeah. organic movement, but very quickly they've got packaged pop punk acts, you know, following the wake of Green Day and Rancid and Offspring and, and does that same thing. Same thing. Then garage gets big with the white stripes and the strokes you know, and they repeat oh. that and ran that into the game oh. too. That's a perfect segue <laughs> to end the show. Very, I personally like the White Stripes, but um, and I, I like the Hives, all right, and 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 some of that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. yeah. What about some Forty yeah. Two? <laughs> <laughs> no, and nor Matchbox Twenty or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, but anyway, imagine, I think I think the moral dragons. story is. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know. I just can't imagine them because they're dragons, but still. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. My my kid bought an Imagine Dragons record and regretted it by the time he was twelve. So you know. I thought you were gonna say you. I, you, I, I I thought you, 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 made, you made him sleep in sleep in a yard for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just glad he was showing some interest in music. But anyhow, uh, yeah. I mean that's that's the tale of grunge. But I was thinking about like hip hop evolution. And compared with metal evolution, it'll be interesting to see where we go in the next few episodes because. With hip hop evolution, they were able to find organic scene after organic scene in Memphis and in Houston and in Atlanta and you know, LA. I mean, Northern California, all these places that had organic grassroots scenes that built their own locally mass audiences and then went national. With metal, like grunge might be the last bastion of a local scene that blows up and, and went totally national. And then after that, then it becomes sort of this corporate calculated thing. So anyway, well, well, why I'm here fucking up your show. Let me ask you this. So, uh-huh. But but the metal scene, is it just me that did metal turn into country music? Because in before metal was kind of progressive. It was introducing new stuff different from everybody else. You had, you know, you had the progressive metal bands, first Black Sabbath, different everybody else, then progressive with Judas Priest. Then it gets more punk oriented with Motorhead and Iron Maiden. And, you know, then the thrash metal. So everything's adding something. And now it's almost like traditionalism, like country music. It's the same stuff over and over again that they kind of. I mean, I don't know. I, I And we'll, we'll, we've got more ground to cover. And some of these things I don't know that well. But Which like, means we'll have to bring it back. Ext- <laughs> 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 my experience with extreme metal is 
that like death metal kind of painted itself into a corner like after napalm death or deicide where do you go from there and really after yeah. two deicide albums where do you go from there you know yeah, after yeah. killing after killing deities where do you go yeah that's uh <laughs> that's pretty, that's, you really but, can't go further than that and then yeah and then with black metal of course you know mass murder and church arson the, the, <laughs> but but that kind of became you know this ongoing scene and for a while i was kind of fascinated with this idea it didn't really pan out but it seemed like industrial or goth and metal had changed audiences like nine inch nails mm-hmm. was this massively popular thing that attracted all these midwestern meatheads that i knew back home and metal had turned into this Norwegian weird cult thing that was getting these weird art school kids who wanted to wear makeup and paint themselves black. So it's like goth and metal had just traded audiences. Yeah. Like, like, uh, let it roll. And if the shoes fit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know you. Thank you. That's the hook. Get him out of here. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you fellas. That's the, the end of our show. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi return to quarrel about new metal. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.